What I want to talk to you tonight will be very specific for uh, some people, but will have application for all of us. So I, uh, I pray that you'll just open your ears and your heart because this could be a breakthrough night for you. How, how many of you ever suffer from anxiety in some type or measure? Truth is, we all suffer anxiety. The question is, what do you do when the peace in your life becomes deeply disturbed as a result of events that you have initiated or even more concerning as a result of events initiated or fueled by others that have an impact upon your life? Some people immediately begin the process of rendering evil for evil, retribution, how do I get back at this person? How do I show my anger? Others begin the difficult process of why, internalizing, why is this happening? Or turn very much on ourselves, why me? Why has this been done to me? Why is this happening to me? We can so easily be drawn into a strength-sapping process trying to change the outcome, which in some circumstances, listen to me, cannot be changed. Worry does not drain to tomorrow of its problems. It just robs today of its strength. There is a prayer that uh, was written in the 1800s that was very popular at one time. Some of you will have heard it. For some of you, it will be brand new. But here's what that prayer says. Grant God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Courage to change the things I can and wisdom to know the difference. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can and wisdom to know the difference. I guess you've already gleaned by what I've already said that I am proposing to you that there are some things you cannot change. Some things with strength you can, but some things you cannot change. Therefore, my question to you, what is your solution to the challenge when you encounter things that you cannot change? The Apostle Paul writing to the Philippians in chapter 3 and verse 13 and 14 says these words, but one thing I do. So he's just talked about how he could boast about some abilities that he had, but how at the end of the day still he finds there are things that are outside his control. And he says, taking the things that I could change and the things that I cannot change, one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press towards the goal which is the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says there is a prize that you win by forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forwards to those things which are ahead. And the prize that you receive is that you get the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Or in other words, you become upwardly mobile. In other words, your situation is not terminal. It will not hold you down continually if you will do what Paul says, forgetting those things 
which have passed, and reaching out toward the things which are ahead, we press for the goal of the prize of the upward call of God. Now, to emphasize this, I want to I talk about uh, a story that's in the Old Testament part of the Bible. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, you'll find recorded the aftermath of a famous ancient sex scandal involving a Jewish king called David. It's not the only sex scandal in the Bible. It's one of the better known ones, the other one being Samson and Delilah. There are others, there's incest, there's, there's, there's all kinds of things going on, but this is one of them that teaches us an amazing Lesson, if you thought that the Bible is a sanitized book that just talks about the good and the blessed, I don't know which Bible you've actually been reading. The, the authenticity of the Bible, for me, based in the fact of how much it is unsanitized and how the Bible is a book about humanity failing, failing badly, humanity being without strength, without courage, without direction, but it's how those lives have been revolutionized and changed. That's why I believe the Bible is good for our lives and why I believe the Bible conveyed through a religious lens is not the Bible that is written for our record because it's about failed people who make good. Now your qualification for that is to be a failed person. It's failed people who make good. I'm qualified for everything the Bible has to say, because I'm a failed person. And so this King David, there was this big sex scandal which you read about in the previous chapter, chapter 11. And it starts out with these words that says, at the time when kings go to war, David was at home watching porno on Sky Balcony. Well, it doesn't actually say that, but that's kind of what it says. Because you couldn't go online to watch porno back in David's time when he was the king. So he did the next best thing. When everybody was away at war, when all the guys were gone, he decided, I'm going to stay home. And he went up on his balcony and he was peeking on the ladies who would have showers on their balcony. Because remember, we've got no inside toilets and no inside bathrooms. So it was common to wash or shower on the roof in the water. So David's getting himself an eyeful of all the nice ladies at bathing time just coincidentally happened to be up there at the time when, when the ladies were doing their naked bathing thing. And uh, he, spotted, he spotted a woman across the way uh, who he liked very, very much. And uh, her name was Bathsheba. She was married to a guy called Uriah who was uh, from a tribe called the Hittites. He was away fighting in David's army at the time, so David saw his opportunity, her husband's away fighting, I'm the king, who's going to say no to the king? So he sent somebody over to the house and said, bring her over here, of course he probably wined her and dined her, I don't know what he did, the top and bottom of it is that they finished up in bed, they finished up having sex, and then he sent her home. I actually think that David intended that that would be it that no one would say anything, that this would be the end of the matter. There was one problem. She got pregnant that night from that one-night stand 
of David with the girl and suddenly the cat's out of the bag and there is a problem because now she's married to one of his top soldiers. He's got her pregnant. How is she going to explain a pregnancy? He goes through all kinds of things to try and cover his tracks as we always do and none of them worked. So the top and bottom of it was that David had her husband murdered so that he wouldn't get the blame from her husband for getting his wife pregnant. Now, personally, I'm not sure at that time that David had any real intention of taking care of Bathsheba, but there's a little story that shows you what happens from there, which is in 2 Samuel chapter 12, because a guy called Nathan, who was a, who was a preacher, he was a, a priest, he was a prophet, he popped in for a chat and said, hey Dave, we need to sit down. You and I need to have a little chat. It's never good, is it, when somebody comes in authority and says that. Can we have a little chat? And so he goes and talks to David, and as he goes into David, he begins to tell a story which is describing the king himself. Okay? The king doesn't realize at the time that he's being described because the story he tells him is of a rich man who has everything you could ever dream of, lacks nothing, and that a poor man came to the rich man's house. And the poor man, all he had was one lamb. And he loved that lamb like, like Beth loves Howard. He loved that lamb. He said it ate at his table and it even slept in his bed. It's getting worse tonight, isn't it? He even slept in his bed because here's Nathan telling the story, and he said, he said, the problem was that the king wanted to provide a feast for the man. But instead of the king killing one of his many thousands of, of, of lambs, he took the lamb from the man who only had the one lamb that he really loved, and he, he killed that lamb to feed the man and to feed the household. And David absolutely flew into a rage. He was just just absolutely nuts about this. And he said, you tell me who that man is because I'm going to arrest him. I'm going to make him pay back four times what he's stolen and he is going to suffer the full punishment of the law. And then Nathan just looked at David and said, that man, David, is you. How often is it that we actually have no concept of the damage that we are causing through our choices and behaviours, not only to ourselves, but to the lives of others? And that our anxiety and distress comes in then, because the question is not then, why did you do it? You should have known better. That's a dumb thing to say to people. You should have known better. Because the truth is, if you had known better, you wouldn't have done what you just did. So it's evident you don't know better. So should-haves and would-haves and could-haves just simply become ways of heaping pressure. But we have all been guilty of making choices and decisions and doing things that have not only brought things into our own lives that now we have to face, but have brought things into the lives of others. And also all of us here have had things brought into our lives that create those difficulties. And David was being challenged here about his responsibility in this matter. Now what's interesting is that he t as he tells the story in chapter 12, when Nathan is describing the king to himself, he uses a very interesting statement. When he starts the story, he says, he says, a traveler came to the rich man's house. A traveler came to the rich man's house. 
And that that was part of the problem because of this traveler coming to the rich man's house. I think Nathan cleverly was suggesting that, David, everything was okay, but a traveler came into your house. And once that traveler came, that's what caused the problem. For all of us, there is the issue that a traveler often wants to come to our house. And it's at that point when we do things we never thought we were even capable of. The number of people that I have talked to at various levels of relationship to me, whose statement is, I can't believe I did that. And yet at the time, not only was it done, but it was, it was, it was excused in its doing at the time. But afterwards, so often the phrase I hear is, I can't believe I did that. You see, we've always got to be careful when that traveler comes in our life, whether it's the woman on the balcony or whatever it is, the thing that comes to us and starts throwing us off tilt where we stop thinking right and Nathan's saying, because you made room for that traveler, you got into this situation. Now, of course, the other classic thing about that, which I mentioned very briefly, is the giveaway in the previous chapter. At the time when kings go to war, kings should be away at war. And because David didn't go where he was supposed to go at the time when he was supposed to go with the people he was supposed to be with, that opened him up to the possibilities of this distraction coming into his life. So there's a big lesson there that we need to be where we're supposed to be at the time we're supposed to be there with who we're supposed to be with and that will keep us from a lot of issues. Anyway, carrying on with the story in chapter 12. Uh, Nathan shows how when caught up in our own agenda... We treat others in ways we would find unacceptable if done towards us. Isn't it funny how David found this story of the man unacceptable and yet that's what he himself was doing and how often we would find it unacceptable if what was done to us is what we do to other people. And so... What happened was that David arranged for this woman's husband to be killed. And here's what, here's what Nathan said when he put it to David. He said, you killed her husband. You took his wife. And to make it worse, you didn't have the guts to kill him yourself. Now, I've put a few little extra words in there to help you with the, the linguistics of that verse. You killed her husband. You took his wife. But what made that worse is you didn't even have the guts to kill him yourself. He had him put on the front line of the battle, so he was killed in the battle. But as far as God was concerned, David had engineered the situation that was disastrous in that man's life. There are some parallels to that. For example, I know this too well in leadership. People who send unsigned letters or emails with pseudonyms. Thankfully, we don't get them very often, but everybody in authority, particularly in ministry, will know from time to time you get people who don't have the guts to kill you themselves and also want to take what it is that belong to you. Anyway, what happens is there is a child that is the result of David's relationship with Bathsheba. And then it gets very difficult. Some of you may struggle with this. I 
can struggle with it to a degree. I'm a wordsmith, I can talk around it, but it doesn't take away some of the difficulties that we have to address that according to Nathan, God said that the child would die. Now, now I can go all symbolic there and you know, talk about, well, it, what he was saying is the results of that relationship that shouldn't have happened in the first place can't be allowed to live, and so in our lives, things that shouldn't have happened in the first place cannot be allowed to live. I, I can go into all those things, but it doesn't excuse some of the stark questions that we have to face on this matter. Now, what you do need to know is that it was never a matter of God not forgiving David, But that did not prevent a consequence related to his choices. So it's never an issue of God not forgiving you. But sometimes we can become confused in thinking that because we are forgiven, the consequences of the actions that we set in motion will therefore cease. That becomes a different equation altogether. And that's why we're talking about this. Give me the serenity... To, to have peace about the things I cannot change, but also the courage to change the things I can. The problem with consequence in our lives, there are some things you cannot change. You cannot turn the clock back and put them right. So how do we deal with those things? So the child is about to die. Is it symbolic? Is it cruel? Is the child an acceptable casualty of war? Questions. I have them too. I uh, some questions I avoided because I was just, you know, God is sovereign, and uh, if there's one answer I hate in talking Bible and talking the kingdom of God, it's that God is sovereign. It's like, here's my trump card that says, you have no answer to this. God is sovereign. Well, I could also argue back for you if if I If you mean what I think you mean, then I have to tell you that God is cruel. God is genocidal. God is mean. God kills babies. So I propose to you, if you can't answer those questions with a better answer than God is sovereign, which then makes God not beloved, best not use that answer, eh? I'm going to be honest with you and say... I think I understand some things. Some things I cannot change. I don't understand them. But because of what I understand beyond that, it helps me deal with that. And that's what we're going to talk about for a few minutes. As with anything, and I have a picture. Remember, how many of you have seen this picture? Did I give you the picture? I don't think I gave you the picture, did I? I won't show you it. I have a picture that, um, that was taken in Barcelona. I forgot to give it to Robert. Um, But in the picture, it looks as though in the crowd, I have chosen the lady's bag and that I'm peeing in the lady's bag. I hope that doesn't offend you, but it looks awfully like that. I mean, those who've seen the picture know it just, it looks like nobody's noticed and I'm stood there peeing in the bag. Well, of course, I'm not peeing in the bag. The point I make from that is the angle from which we view anything determines our perception of the thing. And so the angle from which we view this issue is going to determine our perception of God and our perception of what we need to do in response to that. So getting into the little bit of this chapter I want to read and then bring my conclusions is that David desperately tried to change the outcome which had been forecast. So this becomes our wonderful illustration. Nathan says, the child cannot live, the child will die, David is heartbroken. 
He's created this situation of the child, and now the child is going to die, which means the mother will be bereaved of the child that in essence she shouldn't have had in the first place because she wasn't his wife to get pregnant, and he now, as king, has got the issue of bringing this child in his house, and with all his wealth and all his power and all his fame, he can't make the child survive, he can't make the child live, and so he's desperately trying to change an outcome which had been forecast, and he was deeply troubled and saddened by the situation that was confronting him. And that was multiplied, in this case, by the knowledge that he was at least partly responsible for the situation as it now stood. Have you ever found yourself in that situation where you thought, I can't change this? There's nothing I can do to change this. And particularly then when you're thinking, and I'm responsible for this, or I'm at least partly responsible for this, and I can't change it. So let's pick up the story in 2 Samuel 12 and verse 15. It says, And the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David. Now, we, ha- we, have, to, we have to draw some conclusions there because some of you could get as mad as heck in here. You, you often see this phrase used in uh, Hebrew writing in Scripture and translated and My question would be, when that is written, did the Lord really strike the child? Or in the cultural understanding, is that to their best understanding the best way they can explain the unexplainable? Well, it must have been God that struck the child. In the same way that they still believed in the day of Jesus, a thousand years after this, that if you were sick, you must have sinned. And that sickness was a result of sinfulness. So there were many kind of beliefs there that I just throw out to you just, just for you to think about. But whatever happened, because again, whichever way you go with this, the truth is the child has been stricken. The child is sick. The child is going to die. You can sit here and talk for the next 20 years about who, why, what, where, when, but the child is going to die. How are you going to deal with the reality of the history in your life right now. He says he became ill, and verse 16, David therefore pleaded with God for the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground, pleading with God, God save the child. I'm not gonna eat food, I'm gonna plead with you, save the child. Sometimes prayer's not gonna change anything. Sometimes you have to get used to the fact that things are what they are and you can punish yourself, you can fast, you can pray, you can weep, you can moan. But we have two conclusions here. Either you're not doing enough to change the situation in which you feel worse, more guilty. Your sense of of self-worth diminishes even more. Your, Your value goes through the floor Because you think, oh, if only I prayed more, if only I'd fasted more, if only I'd pleaded more, if only I'd crossed myself more times or said some different words or whatever your thing is. The truth is David did all those things and God was aware that David did all those things and had an all-night prayer meeting. He actually did it for a week. And the elders of his house arose, verse 17, and went to him to raise him from the ground 
but he would not. Nor did he eat food with them. Then on the seventh day it came to pass that the child died. Now, now this will tell you something about the atmosphere surrounding this. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, indeed, while the child was alive, we spoke to him and he would not hear our voice. How can we tell him the child is dead? He may do some harm. I think their fear was twofold that he might do some harm to himself. And how many people are into self-harm because we've got into this situation of something we could not change that now is so stuck in our lives that we're trying everything to deal with it but we haven't realized we can't change that. Or I wonder if the so-called elders or the guys who came in to raise him up, whether they were worried he might do them some harm. How many of you know hurt people hurt people? Wounded people wound other people. And... Um, you know, phrase going around like a bear with a sore head is, that's a phrase for a reason, because a bear with a sore head becomes indiscriminate because he's trying to deal with its pain, often by inflicting pain on others. It didn't mean to do it, but the problem is whether we meant to do it or not, we, we finish up inflicting pain and this whole thing goes on. Have anxiety that we brought on ourselves, or anxiety caused to others, or anxiety that someone else brought into our life. So I'm not saying you shouldn't pray about these things, you shouldn't call on God, you shouldn't, if you believe particularly that way, to fast and to pray. No, but what I'm saying is that sometimes you need the serenity to accept some things because you can pray till you're blue in the face. You can seek God till the cows come home. You can throw every scripture from the Bible the way of heaven, wherever that way is, and still find it didn't solve the problem because in this situation, there is a need for an acceptance and the deliverance comes in the acceptance and in the acceptance comes a change for the future. So something interesting happened next. In verse 19, when David saw that his servants were whispering, because they didn't want to tell him, he perceived that the child was dead. Therefore David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, probably stood at quite a distance, he is dead. When David's perception of the situation he was facing changed to allow him to bring closure to the past, there was opportunity for a resurrection in his own life. But you see, if our perception of the past, if our perception of the pain, if our perception of what we are trying to resolve doesn't change, then if the perception doesn't change, the life does not change. The Apostle Paul put it this way, he said, we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. The transformation comes when the perception changes. <clears throat> is he dead? And they said, he is dead. In the light of this perception, David did something that they did not expect. They expected David to go into a screaming fit. 
probably a violent rage of anger, into a deep depression. They expected him to become psychotic. But what happened surprised them because in verse 20 it says, when David saw that his servants were whispering and perceived the child was dead, therefore David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, had a shower, got shaved, put on some aftershave, changed his clothes, and went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Now, how can David have gone into the house of the Lord and worship when the situation that he was desperately wanting to change hadn't changed on his behalf because when his perception of the situation changed to realize that we leave those things that are behind and press for those things that were before, his perception allowed him to accept the death of that thing and therefore in accepting that, he was able to worship and say, God, this is not the end. But you see, the worship came out of his acceptance that I could not resolve that problem. He came out of his acceptance of, I could not fix it. He came out of his appreciation that this is something I could not change. So his deliverance came from the understanding, I could not change this. I have to submit myself to a greater power in my life. And so I am not going to curse the problem that I could not change. I'm going to worship the God who changes me. If you know anything about David's life, you will know that in spite of this desperate, difficult situation, that his life was blessed by God. He wasn't free of problems. He was an awful father. His family was tremendously dysfunctional, but he was known as a man who had a heart like God's heart. And he wrote at the end of his life, he said, I was young, but now I'm old. I've had all kinds of issues with my family. And if he could have put it, he'd have said, there were loads of things I'd have loved to say that I could have fixed, but I couldn't fix them. But I realized my serenity would not come from fixing them. It would actually come from accepting there are some things that I cannot change, but I rest in the power, the strength, the presence of God Almighty himself, and I worship him for who he is because I know I cannot change that but I can be changed and if I can be changed my future will be determined by my past that the death of that situation will not be the death of me so David went into the house of the Lord and worshipped then he went to his own house and when he requested they set food before him and he ate then his servant said to him what is this that you have done You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but as soon as the child died, you arose and ate food. It's like we don't get this. You know, I mean, you were just, we thought you were going to the loony bin. For seven days, we thought, this is it. We're going to have to take him away in white coats. We we thought you couldn't hold it together. But the moment the child died and you accepted the death of the child, they said, you've come back to more than normal. And he said, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me and that the child may live? Do you get that? He said, there was a time when there was life in this that I thought, 
maybe there's a grace, just maybe there's a solution. You see, there's no guilt in trying to resolve the problem for a period of time. But sometimes you have to say, I've done that, I've prayed, but now the child is dead, I can't fix it. And so he said this, but now he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. So I said all that because I think this prayer is a very important prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change. If I didn't go any further than that, there's a dose of medicine for some of you tonight. Grant me the serenity, the peace, the calming of the storm the leveling of the troubled waters. Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. The courage to change the things that I can, just as important. And wisdom to know the difference. So there are some of you tonight who will not accept that there are some things that have happened that you cannot change. You can't turn the clock back and undo what it is you did. Rub out what it is you said. Fix the damage that you caused. You can't do it. But what I'm telling you tonight is that God is here to grant serenity, to accept that you cannot change those things, but courage to change what you can, and the wisdom tonight to know the difference. And here's the rest of that prayer. Living one day at a time. Enjoying one moment at a time. Accepting hardships as the pathway to peace. Taking as Christ did, this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it. That's a good lesson. Trusting that he will make all things right if I surrender to his will. And that doesn't mean him killing babies. It means his will in your life to bring you from this moment to a place of peace and serenity that I, I love this, that I may be reasonably happy in this life. <laughs> Where did we get the notion that somehow life owes us a favor? If we just look at ourselves, with, with, with the hurt that we have created, with the pain that we have caused, with the rejection that we have done, with the judgments that we have made, why do we somehow feel that in, in the context of that, we still have an entitlement in spite of that to a very happy life? Now I hope you do and I hope you find it and there is happiness in life. But I'm trying to bring you to a maturity that says that I may be reasonably happy in this life. You might think that's a bad thing, but actually what it is, it's a real thing. That says I've learned to understand that life is what it is, not what I would like it to be. 
But that the wonder of the gospel and the grace is that there is a serenity in life that comes to me to bring peace to my soul so that I can accept some things that otherwise I could not deal with. I can handle some things that I cannot change because I have accepted I cannot change those things and I have the wisdom now to know the difference. But there is a peace that passes understanding, the Bible says, that comes from the worship of God to say, God, I can't change that. I give it to you. Bring your peace to my heart, but I worship you because you are still with me and in spite of all the devastation that has been done to me and done by me, this is not the end of the story. That I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. He says there is a hope when the kingdom comes, when the rule and reign of God and of Christ fully manifests in the earth, it's going to be okay. But he's saying that God has given you the strength and the power to get healed and to get whole now. So I come back to the scripture I read you from Philippians at the beginning, but one thing I do, one thing I do, there's a one thing for some of you tonight that is a major choice. I'll tell you why it's a major choice, because... So much of our identity gets locked in to who we have become. And we get so enmeshed with our own weaknesses and bad decisions and failures and marriages that have failed, relationships that have broken down, hurt that has come, hurt that has been given, all that stuff, mistakes that we made, things that we have created, scenarios we've created, maybe children that we created. And suddenly we find our identity in them because we have this inherent need in our own self-criticism and self-judgment to punish ourselves for the things that we cannot change. And so somehow we feel guilty if we accept that we can't change that because then we won't feel bad about it anymore and if we don't feel bad about it we're not accepting responsibility and we should because actually what it comes down to is we judge ourselves and we condemn ourselves and so we feel I can't do that one thing I have to hold on to this and then we've become so accustomed that our life revolves around that that we hardly know how to live free what would it be like if you were free from that anxiety? How would you cope if the situation that has been dictating your life for so long is dead? How are you going to manage if you know that all the fasting and prayer and self-punishment in the world is not going to change it, that it will be a work of grace, that you did nothing to earn it and nothing to achieve it. So therefore you can't say, I paid recompense for what happened in my life or they paid recompense to me. How are you going to live in that place of grace and forgiveness? I'll tell you how you're going to live if you get there reasonably happy. I say reasonably happy because the world still goes on. And all the stuff that was there before is still there now. The objective with David was this will not change by me preserving the child. This will change by God changing me. 
And so I'm calling some of you tonight to do one thing. I always like it when the Bible says one thing. The reason I like it is because it makes it real simple. There's just one thing you need to do, right? One thing. Forgetting those things which are behind. I give you permission tonight in the authority of God Almighty, the Creator, through the wonderful grace that he brought through his son, I give you permission tonight to forget those things which are behind. I sometimes wish in the way we minister that we had a confessional. That's not because I want to sit in there with a the little door and feel powerful, you know. It's because I think there is something very powerful sometimes in not only acknowledging the issues that we're going through, but having some word of authority to say you have been granted absolution. That means you have been not only forgiven, but you have been given absolute release from that issue, from that problem, from that error, from that mistake. I give you permission tonight to forget those things which are behind. And for you to reach forward to those things which are ahead. But you see, while ever you're holding on what's behind, you can't reach forward to what's ahead. Because your hands are not free. Your hands are full with holding on to what's behind. Till you let go of that which David did. He said the child is dead. He didn't go and hug the child and say I'm just going to hold this child. It's cold though it is but I can't forgive myself. He said once I accepted I could not change that. Even though I have done what I could with my own strength and power. You have to let go. Because if you don't. Let go of what is behind. You can't reach. Do you understand what I'm saying? You can't reach to those things which are ahead. There is a goal that I want you to reach for. That goal has a prize. That prize Paul describes as the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That means that God says, get up, get up, get up, get up. David had been laid on the ground seven days. The upward call says, get up. You can stand up. It's okay. Because now you have the serenity to accept the things you cannot change. The courage to change the things you can. And the wisdom to know the difference. Who's prepared to let go tonight? Who prepared to say, I am done with the grip and the hold and the horror and the anxiety and the stress and the distress and the pain of what I have tried to change but accept I cannot. And I'm prepared to come and worship the one who says that there is a prize if I let go and reach forward. One thing, forget those things which are behind Reach forward to those things which are ahead and take hold of the prize. There is a peace that is beyond understanding. 
What that means is, if you try to rationalise why that piece is there, you can't because it's beyond understanding. That's what that statement means. It's a piece that passes or is beyond understanding. The kind of piece I'm talking about is not a manufactured piece that you manufacture because you thought, right, I'm not going to think about it, I'm not going to think about it. It's a piece that is beyond your understanding. It's a piece that comes from God. So I'm calling you to let it go and worship God in this moment and say, Father, I thank you that you love me. As Nathan said to David, you're already forgiven. David, that's not the issue. You are forgiven. The grace of God is on your life. Peace is on your life. But you need to let go of what you cannot change and reach out for what God will help you to change. If you will do that, I believe a transformation will come in your life. Because here's what David, after all this wrote at the end of his life, he said, I was young, but now I am old, but I have never seen the righteous forsaken or the seed of the Lord begging for bread. In other words, David says, it worked. In the pain of that moment, it worked. He found a prize as he reached out to the goal, and I want that to be yours tonight. So just bow your heads. Just for one moment with me, then we're nearly through, and then I want the guys to come and sing what I think is a great song about letting go of stupid little things. In this moment, I want you just to take a moment to receive the grace of God. Grace is not something you manufacture. Grace is something you receive. Instead of the other traveler that comes and distracts, the Bible didn't talk about about the Holy Spirit as a traveler. It talks about him as a visitor. It wants to visit your life and you can give him access to your innermost being right now. If you're serious and, and, and you want to forget those things which are behind and reach forward, then if you will give access right now to, to, to God's spirit, and I hope that doesn't sound strange to some of you, what it really means, the essence of who God is, the, the very personality of who God is, you can absorb into you. In this moment, you're going to begin to reach forward. You've got to be willing to say right now, and I'm not going to make you do it out loud, but you need to do it in your head, in your heart. You need to, you need to God, because of what you have done, I let go of my past. I give myself to forget the things which have gone before. I let that thing die. And my prayer to you right now is, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Father, right now in this place, I know there are many lives who have come to this point tonight with that past, with that history, with those things that they cannot change. But I thank you that you're here in all your love, your kindness, your mercy and grace. And so I speak deliverance over this house tonight. I speak freedom to every heart. I speak forgiveness to every troubled soul in the name of Jesus. I pray that you by your spirit will come and bring healing right now to broken hearts, to wounded hearts, to troubled minds in the name of Jesus. 
I thank you that you're able to say to us today that you are already forgiven because all the issues of our problems were put on Jesus at the cross and there's no more payment required by us for those issues. I not only receive that tonight, Father, but I release it to every heart, to every life in here. In Jesus' name, we declare the child is dead, right? Look at me, the child is dead. The child is dead. It's time to worship, it's time to wash, it's time to move on, because if you'll grab this tonight, your life will never be the same again. In Jesus' name. All right, guys, you're on.